What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the man with the magic name, yes, Rod Argent himself. Rod, how you doing? Oh, pretty well considering, Bob. <laughs> considering what we've been through and, you know, and, and, and the frustration of not being able to work as much as we want to, but there we are. Okay, so how have you coped with the lockdown? Well, I, I have to say that the first two months I was really enjoying because um, uh, I'm, I'm here uh, with my wife. I've never spent a spring since we've been in this house, which is in, in the past six years, uh, and it's in the most beautiful setting. And, and I've never had the chance to share with her, you know, everything coming out in wonderful bloom and walking and being able to spend time with her. I've always been on tour somewhere, uh, which is fine in itself. But uh, for those first two months, it was like a justified holiday and something that uh, we really enjoyed together but i tell you what after about four or five months i just had enough and now i'm screaming because we started a new album and um i'd already written three songs for it and we we got into a finished stage and we were really feeling like we were rocking um and then suddenly we couldn't do any more and and uh we did another couple of tracks where i could actually use technology as it is and sending over um, what we used to call the tapes a long time ago to um, to our bass player who lives in uh, Denmark and, and he would put his part on, you know, in the way that people do like that. But I love actually on some of the songs, the whole band to be together because sometimes it can take you in a direction, even when you're on soundcheck and you think you've got something that really works, um, but it, it, it tells you within a couple of minutes, no, that, that that's that's not how... I thought it would be at all. And you take it into a different direction. And so we've got our first meeting and rehearsal together and recording with the whole band again together um, in two weeks' time. And I'm so looking forward to that, I have to say. Now, you say you're in this beautiful location for the last six years without giving the address. Generally speaking, where is it? 
It's in it's in Hampshire, um, and I'm about an hour south uh, of of London, and it's in the beginnings of what is known as the South Downs National Park. So the countryside round here is absolutely glorious, um, and I, I had no idea it was as absolutely lovely as this, but it really, really is. Everywhere you go, in in whatever direction you go, you go through gorgeous villages, gorgeous protected countryside. You know, it's it's a very lucky place to be. I, I think we're very lucky. So, if you've only been there for six years, where were you before, and what motivated you to move here? We were actually in a house that we've been in for thirty eight years in Bedfordshire, which is uh, north of London, um, in a little village called Silso, and. Silso was a lovely little village when we first moved into it, but as is the way of the world, it got gradually built built up more and more, and um, bypasses and, and, and main traffic roads went all around the place. Um, and it's, I think we just got out in time. My, my wife said, um, "If we are going to move, we've got to do it now before we get too old." So, so we made that decision. Okay, generally speaking, are you turned on creatively by the city or by the country? Does isolation help or does inspiration come from other actions? Going downtown, people coming? Well, I mean, uh, anything can give you a little bit of inspiration. And, and when, when you're in lockdown and you're not doing anything at all, um, that, that's not the greatest uh, place to be. Um, I always remember Charlie Parker reading about Charlie Parker saying that um, to a young Miles Davis, I think it was, or it might have been somebody else, saying, "Listen, whatever you do, even if it's just a walk outside down the alleyway in between sets, do it so that you get some sort of outside input that can just, I don't know, just broaden your perception a little bit, you know, in, in whatever way." Uh, and I think that's very true, actually. I, I think you do need. Um, other things going on and i have to say the more i've been in lockdown that to some degree the less i've wanted to go out and i don't think that's a good thing um <laughs> well i found the same thing in that i'm almost you know the first month or two of lockdown people called you hadn't heard from in years then that stopped it's like i don't want an intermediate zone i want to be hunkered down and then if everything's open i'll go out in between yeah, yeah. is just too frustrating yeah yeah absolutely yeah so, how have you filled the time? You're reading, you're listening, you're streaming. What have you been doing? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, to that much, really, current music. And, um, I mean, maybe that's just a, a factor of my age, really. Um, I still, do you know what? I still go back sometimes and play the early Ray Charles records or, um, or the Miles Davis um, albums from 1958 when he first got together with John Coltrane and Cannonball Adderley and I can still sing um, some of the solos on those very first records that I that I, I got to know in those days and I, I've got a jukebox and my jukebox is full of early Elvis and Little Richard and and you know all, all those all those things um, and and I do find from my limited perception I do find quite a lot of modern music not everything but quite a lot of modern music um a little bit mechanical in in just it's just the way it affects me um and and i i often think that uh when when we started out to make anything work you had to make you had to have a structure that worked you have to you have to write something with a good chord sequence with um uh with something that just works and builds and has a shape um and these days, it's 
to make something work, you can, every, everybody samples things and you can just loop uh, a drum loop and you can get a great sounding little bass loop and throw that on and, and, it, and it sounds like a groove immediately. And you can put two or three things together and it almost sounds like a record. And, and, and then you auto-tune the vocals and you get that sort of metallic sound on the voice that everyone seems to have these days. Um, you know, I, I, I know I'm, this is a huge generalization and I, I quite understand that. No, no, I mean, you know, there's two, you know, the thinking amongst older people is if you trash younger music, you just don't get it. It's an age thing. But we live through the Renaissance. I mean, I always say like in painting and sculpture, there was only one Renaissance. They've been painting and sculpting since then. And the era, certainly you were a member of that in the 60s and the 70s. That's why they call it classic rock. But switching gears a little bit, you talk about your wife. You've only been married once, right? I've only been married once. I met my wife when she was 18 and I was 22. Uh, and we, we sort of lived together for a few years. And then we got married in 1972. And I'll tell you what, Bob, and this is not just sentimentality. We're, we're happier now than we've ever been. Okay. What was she doing when you were eight, she was 18? And where were you at in your career when you were 22? Um, when I was 22... We'd already, I, I was 19 when uh, She's Not There uh, became a number one record in Cashbox. Um, and our first gig in America was at the Brooklyn Fox, Murray the K Show, Christmas Day 1964. And we were, we were scared shitless, actually, because we, we thought, here we are, five skinny young uh, white Englishmen, and we're going to go and play with some of our heroes, like, I don't know, Benny King, Patti LaBelle was on there. Um, uh, Dion Warwick, uh, and uh, and we thought they're going to hate us because uh, they're going to say these guys coming over and creaming, you know, creaming everything, and they're just bringing back American music, but it's a pale imitation. But that wasn't the way they 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 looked at it at all. And I remember we actually walked into the Brooklyn Fox and we had a sound check, and the person sound checking before us was Patti LaBelle. And we thought, oh, my God, you know, how, how are we going to, you know, we were 19 years old. How are we going to follow that? But, you know, we did. And she became a really good friend. And she introduced us to, uh, I remember her saying, there's this young kid on the block you've really got to check out. Her name's Aretha. And this was the day, th these were the days before Aretha was a soul singer. She was doing her cabaret thing with CBS. Um, and, uh, and she told us about Nina Simone. And it was just wonderful. And she would, she would, just talk to us every night and tell us about the black church and how that affected how they sang, you know, and, and how obviously Aretha came up and, and probably Nina as well and, and how she came up and how that affected her, um, her style of singing. And obviously that's where Ray Charles came from in the first place as well. Um, and it was just, it was just wonderful, but you, you're totally right. I, I, I think I, I was so, so fortunate to be born in the time of what was a great cultural explosion because we just had the war. And in the UK, 10 years after the war, there was real austerity. There really was. And suddenly the younger generation started to get a little bit of money. Um, we heard Elvis, which actually blew our socks off. I mean, it, for me, it was like hearing black music by proxy because I'd never heard any rhythm and blues at that point. And I know I'm not the only one. I mean, it was the same for the Beatles, for Van Morrison, Eric Burden, all these guys. Um, and it was just a, 
a wonderful time to be ensconced in all that. And, and I mentioned the, the early Miles Davis group. That was fantastic as well. Huge energy, but really, really inventive. And, and, and the wonderful thing was that the older guy, once we were lucky enough to get a record deal, the older guys in the record business didn't understand what was going on. They hadn't got a clue. So they left it up to the bands. They left it up to them to follow whatever direction they wanted uh, because they were from a previous generation. And it meant that um, it, it, there was none of this um, product management all the time and, and all the sort of DJ, um, uh, what do you call it, playlists and, 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 and very governed, you know, playlists or anything like that. And, and you know what? The, 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 the people, the public absolutely adored that. They adore, adored the real enthusiasm of the DJs who, who would get knocked out by a particular record and play it and play it. And that enthusiasm really infected the listening audience. It was just a, a fantastic time. Um, we'll get back to that time. But let's just kind of close the loop on this. So how, yeah. did, you, how did you meet your wife? I, I, I met my wife um, because, uh, sorry, I was whittering on there and going round and round the, the houses. But when we did the Murray the K show, um, there was uh, some choreography that was going on on the show. And there was um, the choreographer was uh, a, a woman called or a girl called Molly Malloy. And she got married to um, she started going out with Paul Atkinson, our guitarist, and, and eventually married him. And she came over to the UK and she formed a dance company. And my wife was the lead dancer in that in that dance company at that time. And I went to um, I went to a party one night um and uh she grew up my, my wife grew up with someone called arlene phillips who who's who's made a name as a choreographer over here and she's been on the you know the dance programs and everything um and i thought she had the most beautiful face i'd ever seen in my life and uh colin the bastard actually got got in there before me <laughs> uh, and said and, and, and invited her out and actually took her out. And I phoned Colin up because Colin and I, we've always been really good friends. And, and Colin and I uh, uh, had this thing where we wouldn't try and step on each other's toes if it, you know, when it came to girls, you know. So uh, I phoned him up and said, look, I know this is really unusual, Colin, but would you mind if I, uh, I, I said, I'm, I'm pretty besotted with Kathy. Would you mind if I, I gave her a call? And he said, listen, mate, he said, you might, you might even marry her, ha ha ha. Uh, so 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 go ahead if you feel that strongly. So I did, and then went out with her, and we we never looked back really. I mean, we it was a pretty loose relationship for maybe two two or three years. Then we moved in together, and and then we got married. So how do you keep it together, the itinerant life of a musician? I know. Well, the thing was because I, I maybe because. Uh, her life started as a dancer. She became um, an analytic psychotherapist in the second half of her life. But in that first half of her life, she was a dancer. So she understood um, what creativity was and, and how you had to follow it, et cetera, et cetera. And she was always, you know, wonderful about that. I, I still feel very guilty now when we go on tour because, you know, we often, Bob, we often do um, three tours a year in America. Um, and that means a long time away um and and i wouldn't say we're isolated here but it's um you know it's 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 a pretty secluded spot and uh and i i often feel that 
I'm being very unfair to her, but in actual fact, um, it, it's it's worked beautifully. I mean, I mean, maybe that helps in a way because it always feels great when we get back together again. And how many kids do you have? And what Just are they two. up to? And what are they up to now? Uh, we got two kids. A uh, daughter is an actually an academic, but she um, is living with her husband in Austria. And we've got one grandson, which is the only one we're going to get, which is uh, which is her son. <laughs> and and uh, my son, unfortunately, has some uh, mental health problems. But he met uh, a lovely uh, girl who was actually. Uh, a, a great university um, uh, w- when she had a mental breakdown and they got together and they've been together now for uh, 20 years um, and, and that's fantastic and my wife and, and my uh, daughter is very very happy in Austria uh, and, and having a great life so you know we have to count our blessings really I think. And are they off the payroll they make it independently or you help them out? I, I don't have to help my daughter out at all um, the, her and her family are doing brilliantly well Um but and she writes academic books and one thing and another and she's the most beautiful girl as well she looks fantastic well she's not a girl anymore now she's in her four, late 40s <laughs> <laughs> um but um my son i help out and and i count myself in the most privileged position to be able to be in a position where i can continue to support them so that they don't have to live off the government or whatever so they have a good life it's a fairly sheltered life but you know they're very happy so i'm i'm very happy with that okay let's go back to the beginning where in the uk are you originally from st albans which is uh, a little it's not a little it's a city 20 miles outside london north of london and lived there for uh, and when we went to bedfordshire that that's only up the road as well because i i always wanted to be in touch with my mum and dad as well my dad was a a um a dance band musician from the age of 17 to the age of 83 there was a there was a wonderful uh, moment when we had a, a guy doing our boiler in silso and he came up and said what's your dad then is he uh is he a, a a musician at all i said yeah he's he's got his own dance band he's uh and he said how old is he and i said well he's 81 now and he went oh my god and i said um and just the other day he was complaining he wasn't getting enough work <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're growing up at St. Albans. How many kids in the family? Um, just two in our family. Uh, my mum was was one of eight children, um, and and uh, all the brothers and sisters, uh, her brothers and sisters, had kids, um, and and some of them had three, four kids. Uh, I think one of them had five actually. Uh, so I had a huge number of cousins, and they all stayed around the St. Albans area. So uh, there was always a, a very good family social scene around St. Albans. We all live very close and we all used to visit each other. My, my closest cousin was Jim Rodford, the guy who was later in the Kinks, but formed Argent with me um, and later in the incarnation of the zombies. Um, and he became a mentor of mine because he was four years older than me. And he was the guy that introduced me to the music of Elvis um, I remember one day I, I, I went down to his house, only 400 yards away. His mum was my mum's best friend. And um, he was playing me some Bill Haley. And I said, well, it's all right. You know, I don't mind it. Okay, it's okay. And he said, well, let, listen to this. And he played me Hound Dog. And it just blew me away, blew my world away, spun my world around. And then to my parents' horror, 
for six months, I didn't want to hear anything but the rawest rock and roll I could get my hands on. Little Richard, as it was at the time, you know, Jerry Lee Lewis, of course. Um, and then that quickly introduced me to Ray Charles and all that sort of thing. But um, it was a very, very musical family. I, I, my mum got me involved in a great choir from the age of about um, 10 years old. I, and that gave me a real, really broad sort of panoply of um, a sort of umbrella of music. And, and, and by almost by the uh, condition of osmosis, I sort of, you know, drew that in and, 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 and it exposed me to stuff that I would never have heard otherwise. Uh, wonderful music by Bach and, you know, all the other things. But at the same time, that's when we started the zombies. And, and I couldn't bear to tell the, uh, the master of the music that I was going off um, early on a Sunday evening to do a gig with the zombies, a rock and roll gig with the zombies, you know. And uh, at one... Let, <laughs> anyway, let's slow sorry. down for a second. Yeah, did yeah, your, yeah, sorry. Did your mother work outside the home? Uh, she didn't, no. Well, she did much later in her life, she did. She okay, became, but when you were growing up, she didn't. And no, was, your, was your father's main source of income the group? No, the, his main source of income was uh, as an um, uh, aeronautical engineer. He, he worked in a in a, a, the Hatfield um, Aeronautical Works, uh, which was about five miles away from St. Albans. And uh, Colin came from Hatfield. And, um, you know, that, that provided a, a link as well. But I don't think, and his father worked there too. Um, Jim's father worked there. Uh, but I don't think they, I mean, obviously Jim's father and my father knew each other, but uh, I don't think Colin's uh, father ever did. But there we are. Mm. Okay. And your sibling, older, younger, male, female? It's, it's my sister, and she's uh, 10 years, ten, between 10 and 11 years younger than me. Okay, so you're the golden child, and you're growing up in St. Albans. Sounds like your father made a good living, so it wasn't like you were economically struggling. Well, um, we weren't economically struggling, struggling, but we lived in a council house. Oh, you um, did? We lived in a council house, um, and um, my father... Um, was making at the time 20 pounds a week. Um, this was in 1955, <laughs> which was much more of an average wage, but a, a, a lowish average wage at the time. And you're growing up, you're going to school. What kind of student were you? Were you popular? Did you fit in? Or were you more of a loner? I was fairly much of a loner. I mean, not completely a loner. Um, it was a school that my mother really wanted me to get into. It's, it's what we call a public school over here, which is, it, it's like a private school to you. But <laughs> right. It's only called public because I think King, Hen King Henry VIII um, uh, designated a few schools for the children of the clergy or something like that. So it became more of a public school. Um, anyway, I had to take an exam. I got a scholarship to go there, which was a, a very good start. But um, after being in the sort of B form, I quickly was um, pushed down to the C form. And it wasn't until the streams divided and I could concentrate on the arts rather than the arts and the sciences that, that I started to uh, make more of a mark academically. Um, and there was only one thing I was ever any good at, Bob, and that was English. And, um, and I would have certainly gone to university at the time if it hadn't been for the band starting to take off. But so, so that route was then closed to me. Um, but you know, but it was a very, it was a, it was a, a pretty highly rated school. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Okay, so you're growing up. When do you start taking the piano or whatever you take? Lessons. Well, I only ever had two years piano lessons in my life, and that was between the ages of nine, nine and 11, between the ages of nine years old and 11 years old, yeah. Um, and you know what? In that time, I played the piano less than, uh, than I ever did before or afterwards. I always... I could always pick out a tune on the piano. And in, in fact, strangely enough, I remember my parents buying me a harmonica when I was um, about seven or eight years old. And somehow I always had this um, facility to look at music visually. And, and, and I could always work out where the tune had to go when I was playing the harmonica because I could, I could work out that this was a a whole, whole tone, that was a whole tone, that was a half tone. It just seemed natural to me somehow. So I could always play a tune on anything that, that people gave me. When I first picked up a guitar, I, 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 I saw immediately that, you know, two frets was a tone and then just one fret is half a tone. So I could always do that. Um, and I played by ear, really. And uh, at, uh, when, I, when I had the piano lessons, it gave me the very basic grounding of what mu- uh, of what notes were and how they associated with notes on the piano and then when i was in the choir 
it, it showed when I, when we were singing, we obviously sang by music all the time. So that gave me a good grounding there, but that was it really. And, and, and then I started playing by ear. I remember there was a, a, a song called Swinging Shepherd Blues. That was the first thing I ever worked out on the piano. Um, it was a hit, hit song before rock and roll. Um, and I, thought I discovered the whole secret of Western harmony because I I played everything in the key of C at the time. And I worked out that if you played, you know, what I know now know is a triad, you know, a, a basic chord of C, C, E, and G, then move my hands up the, uh, right up all the way up to an octave that I could harmonize. I thought almost any melody with one of those three or four chords that were there. And, and it, it, it was late, much later that I got more sophisticated and, and, and started to experiment from there. But that was the first thing. And the, the amazing thing is, I only read about a year ago that, uh, that Paul McCartney said something very, very similar. He said, I always tell people that start to try and play the piano, play everything in the key of C. And, and if you just move those three notes all the way up, you, you can harmonize, you know, most things after a fashion. So that, that was how I, I taught myself. But, you know, I wasn't alone in that. Many, most people in the world of rock and roll are self-taught, I have to say. So you don't read music at this point? I, uh, at that point, I read music very simply. Um, but I could read music because I spent so long in this choir, which was a great choir. Um, I, could, I could then sight read single lines um, uh, almost at any level. But that doesn't mean that I could translate that to the piano, you know, which is much more... Um, um, polytonal, obviously. Um, so they were two different things. But when I came off that, sorry, I'm jumping all over the place here, but that's fine. Uh, when I came off the road, um, actually, with Ar after Argent, because I was between the Zombies and Argent, I was on the road for 12 years, I think, something like that. And then I've just wanted to rest from that for a while. And I thought, I'm going to come off the road and I'm going to do two things. First of all, I'm not going to write anything myself. And then secondly, if anything interesting is offered to me, I'll do it if I, if I think it's interesting. And thirdly, I'm going to learn to sight read. So I took any piece of music, no matter how difficult or how easy, put it on the piano in front of me. And for a couple of hours every day, I would play it. I'd try and play it in tempo, but no matter how funereally slow it was, I'd just try and play it. And it's only like learning a language. You know, after a year, I was in a completely different place and I could sight read pretty much most things. Um, so that was when I, I taught myself that really. And that was when I was, oh, oh God, that was in about 1976 at that point. Okay, let's go back to what it was like. Tell us more about the austerity and when it goes from black and white to color. Well, an example is that things were incredibly austere for, I would say, 10 years uh, in, in the UK, and certainly in England, where I was, between 1945 and 1955. It was incredibly austere, and they were the first years of my life, really. Um, I remember everything was rationed. I remember once um, going into a, 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 a grocery store with my mother, and, and I remember her putting her ration thing down and buying some potatoes. 
And I thought, she's not getting enough potatoes for the money she's spending on them. And I picked out another one and put it in her basket. And then we took it home. And she, and then she said to me, you put a potato in the basket. You've got to take it back. And I was completely mortified, you know. And I, I sort of went back and took this potato back. But, but that was the sort of rationing that was going on at the time. Um, but then uh, suddenly there was a little bit more money. Suddenly things started to change. I remember when I first heard Elvis when I was 11, uh, very soon after that, there was a, a broadcast from America which showed Elvis at one of the very, very early live shows, this very grainy black and white thing. It was probably the Grand Ole Opry or something. I, I don't know. But it was just like magic to me. And I looked at this thing and it was like a, a being from another universe. You know, it, this didn't seem to have any relation to anything that was going on in the UK. All the clothes looked totally different. Um, the, uh, the way he was singing was like nothing I'd ever heard. It was the most exciting thing I've ever seen. And I remember thinking, oh, God, I've got to have a bit of that in some way or other. And I'm sure the whole of the youth of England was think thinking the same thing. Um, you know, it was just like a, a huge wave crashing on the, on the shore. Um, and, and, and that lasted really for, for, for some time. Um, and, and incidentally, the most extraordinary thing was when we finally went over to uh, the Murray the K show, we learned much later in the 90s when I was having a, an interview with the DJ that Elvis had three of my songs on his jukebox. And, and this was, what, what was this, Bob? Eight years, well, the beginning of it was eight years after I'd first seen this being from another planet. And it's like when I first went to, um, as a contrast, when I first went to New York, I hated it because it was so full of energy and aggression. That, that, that was my first impression of it. But in fact, it became one of my favorite cities because uh, it seemed to have an honesty about it at the same time. And musically, it was just brilliant. And you could go and see anything. I mean, I know Chris White and I um, walked into um, uh, a, a jazz club after the show one night, and we saw Roland Kirk. And we were the only two people in, in, in the jazz club, apart from a, a completely dead drunk guy and uh, his slightly less drunk um, woman. And, and, and he was making loads of noise and everything. And I thought, I can't believe this. You know, even then we, we were starting to venerate these guys, you know, and, um, and, and that was the situation. And it seemed, and, and the cars all seemed like mobile jukeboxes to me, you know, whereas all the English cars looked very uh, safe. And, you know, not all of them. I mean, there was the E-Type Jag, which was wonderful. But apart from that, and, and they were so big. And it, it was such a, such a different world. And, 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 and that caused, and, and together with a little bit more money coming through, uh, young people started be, to be taken more seriously. And then with the music, uh, what I said before about the older guys in the, record companies not understanding what was going on it gave a great feeling of power to the young people and then of course the beatles hit the scene in 1962 in the uk a little bit before the us and um and they were a complete breath of fresh air because their music had uh grittiness and vitality but huge invention um it was it, it was like England winning the World Cup every week because um, particularly when they first went to America, suddenly this completely unbelievable thing was happening whereby they were becoming the most important young uh, rock and roll act 
and, th and they were English. And this was in America, where they had all their influences from and where all their idols were as well. You know, there's absolutely no, no difference be between them and us in that way. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it was that explosion out of austerity. And it really was austere. Every, everything was, it, it felt like the world was pretty much in black and white when I, when I was 10 years old, 11 years old. And then it gradually opened up. And then suddenly the young people, um, started to be able to um cause an explosion in 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 all the arts in in fashion um you know in in, in everything really um and it just felt the most exciting time to be young and and the young people seem to have some sort of real power for the first time and i always think that that, that was to do also with news starting to come from you know, Vietnam, that was a little bit later, of course, as well. Um, um, but but um, where you could actually see really what was happening in the world for the first time. And the young people were making up their own minds and they were refusing to do some things that the older people wanted them to do. And, you know, in, in so many ways, it was such an exciting time. Okay, so you're in the choir. At yeah. what point, and then you say, ultimately, Sunday night, you're playing rock and roll. Tell me about the decision to form a band and what the early adventures in forming bands were like. Well, okay, in those days, um, the um, amplification and all the equipment was extremely primitive. And uh, that meeting I've already told you about with Jim Rodford when he played me Elvis, he'd already formed a skiffle group and he played T-chess bass um, with a string um, and, and, a, and a tea chest. And he, he, up till his death, he could still get some great notes out of a tea chest bass with, with string. And he would do occasional nights doing that, which was absolutely fantastic. Um, and of course, Lonnie Donegan was the first person to bring um, his version of blues over, which was, um, you know, not, not quite the, the blues of um, Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker, but uh, it, it, was, um, it, it was blues. And, and, and people were becoming enamored with that. Jim had got uh, his band got who were called the blue tones and he got, and they got some of the earliest electric equipment in the whole of the South of England. And, um, he was 15. I was 11 at, at that time when he was in the skiffle group. Um, I went to see him maybe when I was 12 or, or 13 and I was so blown away by this. And I thought, I have to, in some way or other, form a band whenever I can. Um, and there was one day, um, a couple of years later from that, I think I was 15, when I walked into a, a form room to see a friend, uh, another form to mine, and Paul Atkinson was in the corner. It, there was a little folk club going on, and he was playing an acoustic guitar. And I thought, that guy has got a really good sense of rhythm. Um, I wonder if you'd like to be in a band. And I said, um, I'm thinking of forming a band. Do you want to join? He said, yeah, I don't mind. I thought, fantastic, right. And I thought, okay, where can I go from here? And I thought, my friend who lived close to me was building a bass guitar. He'd never played a note of anything in his life. But I went round to his house that night and, um, and I said to him, how's your bass guitar coming on? And he said, well, it's nearly finished. I said, fantastic. I said, when will it be finished? He said, when will it be finished this week, really? I'm, I'm, I'm there, really, with it. I said, fantastic. Do you want to be in a band? 
And he said, well, yeah, I don't mind. And he said, um, I've got this mate who sits behind me at school. Uh, his name was Arnold A. And Colin Blundstone was B, who sat behind him. And he said, he, he, plays, he plays guitar and he sings a bit. I said, bring him along, bring him along. And then I thought, okay, we just need a drummer now. And uh, our school had a, a, an army cadet force. So on that Friday, I went along to their march past and I picked out the guy who on military side drum seemed to have the best sense of rhythm. And I, I collared him afterwards and said, oh, hi, I'm, uh, my name's Rod. And uh, who are you? He said, I'm Hugh. And, and I said, do you want to be in the band? He said, yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> so within two weeks, we had our first rehearsal. Jim Rodford, as always, a wonderful, wonderfully helpful guy, fantastic enabler. And, and as I say, it was always a mentor to me. And he drove me, I couldn't drive then, he drove me to our first rehearsal. Um, I remember that in the, in the, the, the playground, if you like, um, at break, uh, I was going up to Paul Atkinson and said, uh, we should play an instrumental first. We should do this song called Malaguena. It goes, and he went, okay, hang on. And, and he kept forgetting it. And I kept singing it to him every, um, every, every break. And, and he sort of learned that. And we, and we all drove up and we drove up and we met outside a pub. And this pub, I mean, we, we were too young to go into it, but we met outside and uh, as we pulled up, I said to Jim, oh, God, I hope that, you know, the one guy I didn't know was, um, was Colin Blunstone. And there was this guy standing there um, looking really mean with a plaster across his nose, two black eyes. Um, and uh, he was a rugby player and he'd broken his nose. <laughs> I said to Jim, oh, my God, I hope that's not him. And, and it was, of course. And we went and had our first rehearsal. We thought we were great. I mean, we, uh, Jim showed Hugh the very first kick drum and, and backbeat that he'd ever played and something simple on the cymbals, which to be fair, Hugh picked up in absolutely no time at all. And then, and then uh, uh, we had all the Blue Tones gear. So Paul's bass went through the, the, this wonderful Vox amp. Um, and there was another Vox 30 watt amp as well. I think that we, that rest of us went through, including the vocals. Um, and I was supposed to be the singer. So we, 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 we tried out an instrumental and Colin kept getting the, the line wrong. <laughs> so, so um, I then wandered over in a break to an old beaten up old piano. And I played, I started playing Nutrocker, the old uh, Bee Bumble and the Stingers um, hit at the time. Um, um, da 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 you know and um he came running over to me and said you sound fantastic he said you've got to play piano in the group and i said well not really no it's it's not that sort of group it's a guitar group isn't it i mean no i'm 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 gonna be the singer you know so he said oh okay and then a few minutes later we had another coffee break he picked up his guitar started playing an old rick nelson song and started singing I thought, my God, he sounds fantastic. And I, and I went over and said, I had no idea you could sing like that. You've got to be the singer. And, and okay, I'll play piano. And then for the next two years, I, I suffered the worst beaten up old acoustic pianos, usually at least a semitone down from concert pitch. So everyone had to tune down. 
Um, and, and, and my life changed the day when I found a, um, a Hona Pianet, the, the, the electric Pianet that, that we actually used for years. And I did, she's not there on that as well. But that, that's, that's, that's how the first, and Jim Rodford, I mean, we thought we sounded pretty good at that first rehearsal. At the second rehearsal, when we didn't have the Blue Tones gear, we thought we sounded terrible. But on that first rehearsal, we thought we sounded pretty good. And Jim, many, many years later, said to us, do you know what? At that first rehearsal, I thought, no chance. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you have that first rehearsal. How, what year is that? And how long after that do you start playing gigs? That was in 1961. We started playing gigs after about nine months. And when I say started playing, they were few and far between. The first gig we had was at uh, Colonist Rugby Club, and they had a dance band evening and an interval. There were about 15 people there, um, you know, probably about um, seven couples and one extra bloke. And uh, in the interval, we got up and did our half an hour set. And the half an hour set went down a complete storm, even with, those few people and, and, and what was going on and the terrible amplification. And do you know what? We, we then started to build up completely a local scene. We never played outside St. Albans. It was always in St. Albans. We played about three church halls always um, and, um, and this rugby club. And this rugby club became, uh, after 15 people on that first gig, we then, uh, we, uh, by the end, by, that was in 1960. Two, I think, when we when we had our first gig, uh, or maybe late sixty one, but sixty no sixty two, and then um, uh, by nineteen sixty three, um, they had to have a marquee uh, that took four or five hundred people, and we used to get four or five hundred people in, you know, to play our, and they only they didn't have any proper electrical outlet, so they had a generator, and and we knew that the generator would be brilliant for the first. Uh, hour after that it would slowly wind down eventually there wasn't enough to power my electric piano by the time i got an electric piano and and i would have to just bang a tambourine and stand at the back <laughs> and sing uh, so how do you start writing songs um i always thought that the first song i ever wrote was something called it's all right with me which was on our first album um, but I later found out that I'd written a song for the Blue Tones, unbelievably, um, uh, just about the same time that Please Please Me came out. And it doesn't sound like it's derivative of, of Please Please Me, but it was really. Um, and uh, it does sound a bit beatly. But they actually, their manager, really liked the song and he got them to record it in Olympic Studios, which was, you know, a major, major studio. It's where the Stones used to record, etc. And so that was the first song I ever wrote. It's, it was called um, The Lonely One. I think it was called The Lonely One. Um, and um, so that was the very first song. The second song we used to do in our Zombies set, um, it was called It's All Right With Me. And it was like an early rock and roll song um, with a bit of rhythm and blues thrown in. And then we won um, a Hearts Beat competition. And the Hearts Beat competition... Uh, was, it's because it's Hertfordshire, so it was Hearts Beat, play on words. Um, and we actually played against Jim's band in, in, the, in the final of, of this competition, um, uh, along with three other bands as well. And we actually won the competition. And after, the competi after, the, after we won the final, um, 
there was a knock on our dressing room door and it was Dick Rowe, who was the, uh, the head of Decca Records. And he said, we'd like to make a single with you. Uh, and we said, fantastic. Okay. So um, we, we thought we would record the Gershwin song that we did in our set, Summertime. Um, and we were doing it at this very small studio. And we got involved then through a friend of, one of Chris's relatives was a musician. I think he was, um, I, I can't remember in what way, but he, he was, he was, he was quite a well-known musician in the business. He said, I've got this great friend who's a really good producer. He said, I think you should have a, a professional producer produce your records. And we said, well, okay, great. Um, and he said, also, he said, take him the Dick Rowe Decker contract and get him to look at it and uh, see if there are things in there that shouldn't be in there. And um, this guy was called Ken Jones. We met with Ken, really liked him. He said, Dick Rowe's contract is pretty good, actually. He said, but there are one or two things I would change in that. And he said, these are my suggestions. So we, Dick Rowe was fine with that and he changed them. And we did our first session. And the first session was in two weeks' time. And he said, Ken said, you know, if you like, he said, I know we're recording summertime. He said, but if you like, you could try and write something yourselves. So I went away and Chris White went away and Colin just didn't think any more about it. Neither, neither did the other two guys. Um, and then Colin couldn't believe it when, when I called him and said, um, I've got this song. Can, can we rehearse it? And that was She's Not There. Um, and, and that, you know, in, in that, that really was the third song, but really I've always felt that was the second song I ever wrote. Um, and we recorded that in 1964, in the summer of 1964. Tell me what the inspiration was and how you wrote She's Not There. Well, the inspiration was the session coming up uh, and, and the fact that I was just hugely, hugely enthusiastic about music. I mean, about any kind of music, but particularly rock and roll at the time and particularly the Beatles that had just exploded onto the scene and loved loved everything that they brought to rock and roll music at that time um so uh i desperately wanted to be part of that and i desperately wanted to write and with that naivety and arrogance that you always have maybe only once when you're you know uh, 17 or 18 years old i thought yeah i can write something that's as good as the beatles and and um colin's going to sound fantastic singing it and uh the record's going to sound great. I couldn't imagine anything else. I, I, you know, years later, my God, the pitfalls you have when you're recording and, you know, uh, the fact that you get a great sound in a, in a record uh, studio um, and, and that everything works is, you know, that's, that's not a high chance. But at the time, that's what I thought happened. Um, and, and really, and so I thought, okay, I've got, I've got a couple of weeks to write this. So I went back and I thought, right, I'll play... I'll play a couple of records, try and get in the mood, see if anything triggers uh, an idea. And I put an old John Lee Hooker song on, um, on J J John Lee Hooker album. And the first track on the album was No One Told Me. Now, I rushed to add that the, that was the only lyric that had anything to do with anything in the song. Just that, those opening um, three words, no one, no one told me. Um, and I thought, you know, that, that sort of trips off the tongue. I like the way that trips off the tongue. I thought I'm going to, I thought to myself, I'm going to weave a story around that and 
the one the one thing in, in my mind immediately, I have to say, was the structure of the song. And I thought, I want to start it with a um, something that has a really blues melody, a blues scale for the melodic part of it, you know, for the, the verse. Um, and, and, and that's based around like a minor blues scale. Um, and, and then the second part of the song, I want to go into three-part harmony because uh, we always used to do a lot of harmony right from the beginning, actually. And I thought that would be great, you know, to include lots of harmony. And then the third part of the song, which turned out to be, well, let me tell you about the way she looked and, and all that. I wanted to really build and I wanted to change the meter of the words to help that as well. You know, well, let me tell you about the way she looked, the way she acted, you know, put the stress in the different things. So it, it just sort of grew and then ended on a major chord because the whole thing was in the minor. It ended on a major chord and then fell right back down again to a moody verse again with a, a minor blue scale and minor chords. And, and that was the inspiration, really. Um, and, and so there were all sorts of indirect things coming through. Um, the Beatles were an influence in the sense of wanting to have the harmonies, uh, wanting to include all that. Um, and uh, actually, Ringo was an influence as well from the Beatles, because not, not that we copied a riff of his, but the way he used to break up the verse rhythms quite often, like on Ticket to Ride or, um, you know, uh, he would break up the verse rhythm and then go into a, a more of a steady groove and, and build things from there. I loved that. And I thought, oh, it would be great to have a little bit of that involved, which is how the boom, 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 you know, how that came about at the very beginning. Um, and uh, years and years later, I met Pat Matheny when he was just starting out. And I thought it was a fantastic uh, thing that I'd seen at Joe Papp's Theatre in New York. Um, and he was only just starting to get known. And it, there was a jazz musician that introduced us. And, he, and this jazz musician didn't know who I was, no reason why he should. And he said, oh, Pat Metheny, this is, uh, what's your name? I said, it's Rod, Rod Argent. And Pat Metheny said, Rod Argent? He said, you're the guy, he said, with all that modal stuff you played on She's Not There that made me think I had a way ahead doing what I wanted to do with fusion, you know, fusing different elements, etc. And I, I thanked him very much. And I, and I, I thought to myself, there's nothing modal about she's not there. And, and, and I went back and what I'd originally thought was just a simple A minor to D chord that the, the melody worked around. I'd actually put a, a, a really little modal scale without even realizing because I'd listened to a lot of Miles and Milestones, which was the very first modal thing that Miles ever did, was one of my first jazz purchases. Um, I, I could only afford the EP, so I bought the EP. And, and, and so all those sort of in, indirect influences were coming through. And I think later on, um, things from classical music were sort of influencing me, but never in a conscious way, Bob. Uh, it, it was always, I thought we were just doing, you know, the equivalent of uh, songs, Beatles songs or any other hit that was going on at the time. I, and, and, and yet those other things sort of found their way through. And I, and I think that was, um, I think that was totemic of, of uh, a lot of uh, English stuff, actually, because I remember talking to John Steele from The Animals and he said that when he played House of the Rising Sun, when they recorded it, he was imagining he was playing the Jimmy Smith record of Walk on the Wild Side. Uh, so, you know, those very indirect things um, were, were, were all around, I think. 
So th- I, I think they were the inspirations of, of, of starting to write and, and of She's Not There. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. All right, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Okay, the Zombies records had a dark quality. And that made them magical. Was that in the song or was that Ken Jones? Oh, uh, well, I, I, don't, I don't want to sound like I'm boasting, but I think it has to be in the song, really. Um, I don't think it was, it was Ken. I mean, although, you know, I must say the, you know, the echoes used on Colin's voice, particularly on She's Not There, uh, were really, really good. Um, but he just really used to master my... I, Recordings were done very, very quickly. We rehearsed. We rehearsed at home uh, in my mum's front room, actually, with the piano. And the poor guy next door was on night work. (laughs) (laughs) So that was was pretty hard for him. Um, But he never complained. But um, uh, we used to rehearse everything. And then we would record, I think, in a three-hour session. In those very early days, we might do three songs. Yeah, in three hours. Okay, so she's not there. It's cut. Do you think you have a hit? How does it become a hit? And what does that feel like? One of the things we did with She's Not There was um, we, uh, we recorded it and we thought it sounded pretty good. 
we thought it sounded lovely. We we're very excited about it. Um, but we thought it needed just something else a little bit. And so in those days, you recorded on four tracks and then you mixed the four down to one to mono because there was nothing else there. It was just mono. And as you, if you wanted an extra track, as you mixed to mono, you would add that extra track. And we added a drum track, um, which put a flam on the beginning because originally it was bum, 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 but uh, this became bum, 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 and 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 then just a little bit extra on the on the bridge into the chorus, um, and that for me that was an important part of the record. Later on, um, because we thought records only had a life of two or three months, and then then you'd never hear it again. So you know we we go away, and then two or three years later, some student engineer at, at um, Decca remixed it in stereo, but he, of course he didn't have that extra drum track so very often now even the mix that you hear um on quite successful commercials um is the stereo version without that extra groove which makes it sound much more cool uh to me but with all that in mind i thought what we ended up with when ken uh, when it, it, it had all been mixed because also the um you may have heard this story bob but the engineer um at the time got very very drunk because he'd been at a wedding in the afternoon and we were recording through the night um and um he passed out um and and when he passed out we 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 all carried him upstairs put him in the cab and he went home and ken jones said to the tape op the assistant engineer you're gonna have to carry on with the session and that tape op was gus dudgeon and that was his first <laughs> ever that was his first ever um uh uh, experience as a, a a first engineer you know um so anyway two two of the sides that we cut were brought round to um uh one of the, the one of our houses and ken played it to us he said we've got to choose which is the single and it was between she's not there and you make me feel good which was uh, the chris white b-side um and we found it hard to make up our mind we thought they both sounded really good um and I, I was, I secretly preferred She's Not There, but then I would, wouldn't I? Because <laughs> I wrote it. But um, luckily for me, it, it, the decision came down to um, She's Not There. Uh, and, 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 I, and again, with that naivety and arrogance, we just, you know, we just expected it to be a hit. We had a huge break because there was almost no place right at the beginning when the record first came out where you could hear records on the radio the bbc was the only major station that played records and they had half an hour a week of records i think that was it and and, and they'd only play half of them you know it was that sort of thing but there was this tv program called um jukebox jury and they would play a minute and a half or something like that of of, of a record or two minutes maximum and the panel would would either vote a hit or a miss um and george harrison happened to be on the week that we were lucky enough to get this she's not there but put on jukebox jury and i was watching it like this because you know the beatles, the beatles to us like to every other young musician at that time were gods and i thought please don't let him say anything bad about the record oh please you know but um and i as each record came on, he was never nasty, 
But he was sort of saying, well, no, I don't think so. You know, and that sounds pretty ordinary, actually, to me, you know, and all that. And then we played ours and I, I was looking from behind the sofa, you know, and uh, he said, um, well done, zombies. And then he actually said something about, I can't remember what it was now, something about the piano solo. He said, you know, if that's, the, if that's their real pianist, that's great. I thought, what? What was that? Did I hear that correctly? You know, and, um, and I'm sure that gave it its first leg up. And then very soon after that, all the pirates started uh, to broadcast with these young DJs who were full of passion and enthusiasm about the music that they were playing. And they played She's Not There a lot. Uh, and, you know, it was just such a lucky time. I mean, we were so lucky with our timing. Okay, so that's a huge hit. How does Tell Her No come about? Well, the, ne- the follow-up in, in the UK was Leave Me Be. And it's not that I don't have the utmost respect of Chris for songwriter, but we thought it was a terrible record, a terrible single. Uh, and we thought it was really, really limp and weak and that came out and it was a huge flop in the uk and and in the end we only ever had one hit in in the uk um and i'm sure that was the reason um and then because of that in the states they decided to miss out leave me be and put tell her no out now tell her no as a song came about because we've been uh, on a a package tour in the uk with Dion Warwick and the Isley Brothers. The Isley Brothers were, were oh, they were just fantastic. And, and they were absolutely, they became really good friends. And Ronnie Isley's got the most beautiful voice, you know. And, and they were giving us all sorts of tips and they were really, really lovely. Um, and, but Dion Warwick was having hits in the US and in the UK, although most of her hits in the UK were, covered by people like Scylla Black um, and Dion Warwick was getting really annoyed about this, you know, because uh, she said, can't you find some of your own songwriters? And, and I thought, well, do you know what? I love some of the Baccarat stuff I've been hearing. And, and I absolutely loved the, the way that he was taking things away from just playing chords into more jazz informed chords like um without wanting to get too technical like major sevenths major ninths major elevenths and 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 things like that and i thought i would love to you know put some of that into what we're doing and and i i wrote this song again fairly quickly uh, called tell her no which was using these major chords but with some jazz colorations in them as well now you know tell her no sounds like a very simple song and it is and i and i always think that when things really work, they always sound simple, uh, but it doesn't mean that necessarily um, there's not something nice going on underneath or something that's a little bit more inventive going on underneath. You just shouldn't be aware of it, I guess, really. Um, and um, anyway, that, that, that was how, how uh, Teleno was written. Um, and um, to a you know, huge pleasure to us because when we were recording it, as we were recording it, uh, um, not Al Cooper, uh, Al Gallico, our publisher in the States, phoned us up, which was a big deal in those days, phoning from the uh, US to UK, while we were recording. And so I just wanted you to know that um, She's Not There uh, is number one. So uh, over here now, um, so we were knocked out. um, And and then 
the next thing we sent him was Tell Her No, and luckily it became a top five record as well. Okay. How does the band ultimately peter out and break up? And then is the story true about Al Cooper pushing the button on time of the season? 100% true. Um, what happened was that although we love Ken, and he was a great musician, really good pianist himself, um, he was an old school guy. And whereas we felt that on the very first session that he did with us, he was a great producer because he just got the best out of the songs. After that, he seemed very intent on trying to analyze what had made the first record successful. Excuse me. And um, in his mind, he thought, well, you know, there's a really breathy quality to Colin. So we've got to emphasize that. And, uh, and, and rather than taking whatever songs Chris or I had written and then getting the best out of them, he was trying to fashion them in a certain sort of way. We did, we did a, a, a song, I think our third single in the States was called She's Coming Home. And he tried to fashion it just like the Righteous Brothers of You, you Lost That Loving Feeling. He was putting the same sort of echo on it and, and throwing it that way, you know. And we thought this was so wrong. We thought it should just be a, a good production is just getting the very best um, out of what you, what you were doing. Anyway, to cut the long story short, we had lots of singles and none of them were hits in the UK. Um, and although we later found out that around the world, many of these were, have been hits, actually. Um, but, but in those days, you didn't get news all that quickly. You know, you, you can have a, a hit now in outer Mongolia and know within an hour or two. But, right. in, in, but in those days, you know, it, it probably took, you might never find out. Um, so it had the result that Chris and I, because we had very honest publishers, um, we got all the money that we were due from writing. So we were doing pretty well and, and we didn't have money problems. The rest of the band were completely broke and because we were based very much in the, the UK. And I have to say there was um, a little, little bit of exploitation going on and, and we'd be on tour in America and we'd be on tour with big hit records and, 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 and playing with on, on massive shows to 20,000 people and just breaking even by the time we got back. And somebody else was making a huge amount of money and it wasn't us. So that was their situation. And one day, um, well, th there were two things. Okay. So first of all, we were looking back on the singles that we'd recorded and, and Chris and I were thinking, what happened to that song? We did a demo and the demo's a lot better than the final record. You know, where, where's the, we, we recorded um, we, one of my songs called Is This a Dream? And it was really rocking in the studio and we were never allowed into the mixes. Um, Ken Jones would always insist on mixing it by himself. And we came back from the pub after he'd mixed it and Colin said, is that the song we recorded? I mean, he thought it was almost a different song. Um, and, and we'd had enough of this, you know. And I said to Chris, look, if we're going to break up because some of the guys have got no money, and Paul Atkinson was getting married to Molly, Molly Malloy. And he said, I've got no money and I want to get married. I've got to get another job. I'm sorry, guys, but I, I, I'm going to leave. And, and we were all still friends. There was no antipathy in the band. We were just, we were all friends. Um, but things were breaking down. And I said to Chris, look, we've got, we've got to do at least one album where we can write some material and have it realized in the way at least that we hear it. And if nobody likes it, 
there's nothing we can do, but at least, you know, we feel satisfied that we've actually got it down on record. And, and so, and I have to say that Ken was great about this. And he said, okay, if you want to produce something yourself, he said, I'll support you. Um, I'll go to, um, I'll go to EMI and see if I can get you a deal. And I asked, he said, you should try and record at Abbey Road. And I, and we said, well, surely you have to be signed to EMI to, to record at Abbey Road. And I said, you know, the Beatles are, 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 are the biggest act there. So anyway, he got, he, somehow he used his influence. We got a thousand pounds, which even then wasn't a huge amount of money to do an album. And we walked into Abbey Road just as the Beatles a week before had walked out having recorded Sergeant Pepper and they'd left quite a lot of stuff around the studio. Thank God that John Lennon left his Mellotron there. And without asking him, sorry, John, I, um, I just used it and, and, and used it all over uh, Odyssey and Oracle, but it was great because we, because we had no money. We really rehearsed and rehearsed and we rehearsed, and we put the backing tracks down and, and, uh, and the lead vocal as we heard it and, and the harmonies, actually. But then, because the Beatles had worked out technically how to get slightly more than four tracks, they, they managed to get seven tracks. Um, they didn't have an eight-track machine in the country like Brian Wilson had had, but they managed to get the boffins at Abbey Road to work out a way of having seven tracks. And so what we would do is we would record exactly as we heard things and it would be recorded in the way that we'd heard it and we were over the moon about this. And then, even though it was really prepared, we had a bit of um, spontaneous chance of improvisation or just a last-minute thought. And even on, on um, time of the season, I remember we recorded that and another track, the backing track of it, uh, in three hours, time of the season and something else at the same time. Um, and as we were playing through, we all thought it sounded pretty good. Um, and, um, I, but I said to Hugh, where it had been, doom, 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 sorry, doom, 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 like that. I said, sounds great. But I said, you know what? I can hear a bit of percussion either side of the backbeat. I can hear doom, 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 like that. And honestly, he said, well, if you hear that, he said, you know, we've still got a few minutes, go in there and, and bang it through. And we had Jeff Emmerich as um, engineer on that particular track. And I, and I have to say, right from the beginning, the sound was brilliant. And, and there was something about, even when we recorded before those, those bits, um, there was something magical about the way he'd recorded the tom-toms with the bass. It just sounded it sounded so right. And, and we were really excited, but we put this improvisation thing on. Um, I, I, and that, that's the one I really remember on that, that particular track. It was done so quickly, but um, when it finished, we thought that's the best we can do for an album. We were all, all really happy with all the tracks. We thought it was great, but we thought if no one likes it, what can we do, you know? So anyway, it came out in the UK because everything was very based locally at that time. It was, it was much more hard. It was even hard from a business point of view to go to the States because, I mean, we, at one point, we had to um, swap on the Musicians' Union with the Duke Ellington Orchestra, you know, so all, all these things were going on. Um, but, um, 
it finished and then we thought we put one single out if the single's a hit fantastic if it's not then okay at least we've got something that we really like and it, it's there so we have one dj in the whole of the country who liked it kenny everett this guy called kenny everett uh, who, who was a, a really cool dj and we had one meeting with him and he said i hear you're breaking up and and we said yeah yeah but well we've had you know, we, we've put the first single out. Nobody's playing it. He said, I play it. And, he, said, and he, he played it once a week on his program or something like that. But it just died a death. And we broke up. And, and that was the reason. But we were really happy from how it sounded. Um, but we were unhappy um, from the fact that it wasn't a hit, of course. And then if anyone had said to us that in 55 years time it would be selling far more every year than it ever did when it first came out we we'd have, we'd have thought he was absolutely crazy but you know that's the the weird thing about life so ultimately the record is a gigantic smash the band is already broken up what is that experience like and how do you decide to form argent well uh, as soon as the zombies broke up i uh, I stayed together professionally with Chris White and we decided to form a, a, a production company. And then we start, then we thought, okay, we're going to have to try and get someone to finance this production partnership. And I didn't think how we were going to do that, but then suddenly uh, we'd already well formed by, by uh, Argent at the time that, that um, um, time of the season started to be a hit in the states because it came it was a hit 18 months after um odyssey and oracle came out and that i mean that was in 67 when we actually finished it and it was 69 before it finally like like crawling up the uh, up the the top 100 until it finally ended up right at the top which was just wonderful um and we only found that out actually uh, two or three months before it reached number one because we got a call from Al Gallico, the publisher in America, saying, this is starting to be a hit. He said, one guy in Idaho, uh, in Boise, Idaho, is starting to play this, just one guy. He said, and unbelievably, in a very, very slow pattern, like a, like a stone in a pond, the ripples are starting to cause um, success. And, and those ripples are causing people um, to start uh, spreading the news. And then, of course, it absolutely caught fire at a certain point. And then, it, and then, then with complete wonder, we were looking at the, you know, the top 20 and seeing some of our, our heroes uh, beneath us. You know, and there, there we were. And it was wonderful. And actually, it felt, it felt glorious because already Chris and I, were able to go over to um, Clive Davis and we're able to say we've got a number one single that Chris and I have produced um, and we've already planned a solo album for Colin Blundstone, which was one year, um, which I still think is a great album. Um, and, um, and we formed another band called Argent and we played two or three tracks that we'd already got and he loved it and, um, he, and, and he said, yeah, okay, we'll 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 release that. Um, I mean, Clive was was one of the guys that I'm sorry. I'm going back to your previous question now. Uh, uh, he was he was the guy that said um, 
uh, when Al Cooper came over uh, in 67, um, he just signed with Clive Davis as the, 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 the top A&R man in CBS. Um, and he came over to the UK and he wrote this thing which said, um, I bring back 200 albums and, you know, the, the, the Rose Amongst Thorns were, were Odyssey and Oracle. And he went back at a meeting with uh, Clive Davis and said, there's only one album that I think that wherever that is, whoever is, he's got it um, in the whole world, you've got to buy it. He said, it doesn't matter how much it costs, you've got to buy that album and release it. And Clive said, well, we, we, we bought it, but we decided to, 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 to not, not, not release it. You know, we passed. And, uh, and, and Al said, well, you, you've, got, you've, got to, you've got to release it. And he was 100%, um, it, uh, it was completely to Al that, that it was down to him that it was released. It would not have released otherwise. And then Clive, who didn't really see it at that time, released um, Bush's Tale, uh, which is one of my favourite albums on the album, but never a single in, in a million years. I loved his song. I thought it was great. An anti-war song. Um, and of course, it was, a, uh, uh, it was a stiff. And then he released Carousel 44, which also did nothing. And then finally, as a last gasp, he put Time of the Season out. And of course, it was then that it was a hit. And so he was then really, really up for doing a production contract and, and, and releasing Arjit. So for Chris and I, it was like a dream. We were going over with a number one record and it felt really easy to, to form, form an album. And, and we were off. Okay. So you have a production company. How do you hook up with Russ Ballard and decide you're going to be back in a group? And then the first two records have great tracks, but there's not really any financial success, commercial success. Um, we went into a, a, a Russ and Bob Henry, Russ Ballard and Bob Henry were playing in Unit Four Plus Two at the time, and uh, Jim Rodford again. I, I formed uh, Argent with Jim, and he said, "You know," he said, "There's a great drummer uh, that's playing in Unit Four Plus Two at the moment. He was in the Roulettes with Russ Ballard. They were in the Roulettes together, and they're they're two really really good people. I'd never seen them play." And uh, he said, you should really try and catch them, see what you think. And Chris and I found out they were playing at a little church hall. And I said, I tell you what, Chris, we'll pretend that we were just passing and we saw the, the sign outside that it was unit four plus two. And we'll wander in and, and, and just to say hello. And, and uh, uh, um, just as an accident, we'll be passing and we'll, we'll walk in. And, we, we sought out this little church hall in the back of beyond and we went past this, um, this church hall and we went in and to our horror, we couldn't lose ourselves at the back of the hall because there are only about 10 people in the, in the <laughs> hall. So, so we, we sat at the back of the hall or we stood at the back of the hall feeling, uh, and, and they looked and, and saw us and sort of went, you know, because they vaguely knew it. They sort of had met us, I think, or at least they, Knew Chris or something, I can't remember. Um, but anyway, uh, or, or we knew Lem Lubin. I think we knew Lem Lubin, who was in, in, the, in, the, in the band. Anyway, we went back. We, we thought they were great. I thought, I thought 
Russ was fantastic when he when he was singing bits and pieces because uh, I think it was Tommy Moyler that was the, mainly the lead singer. Um, and we went backstage afterwards and they had a new manager and we felt really embarrassed because we were sitting at the back of the hall, uh, back of the, the, the changing room, uh, and the, the, the manager went crashing in, his new manager, and said, um, I can tell you in three words what's wrong with this band. And we sort of looked at him and thought, oh, God, we shouldn't be there, really. And he said, stop drinking. And we completely fell apart because those three songs were stop drinking. Those three words, sorry, were stop drinking. Um, anyway, we thought they were great. And we asked them, we, we, we met up with them in London and said, look, we're, we're starting this, this thing. I've got a couple of songs. Uh, I'd written Like Honey at the time. Um, and, um, I can't remember a couple of things and, uh, and they said, yeah, I think it'd be, uh, we played some demos that we had and they really liked it and said, yeah, yeah, we should, we should, we should call it. And we said, and I said, well, we've got to have a, a name. Um, and look, we were going to call them because of Argent meaning silver. We were going to call them something like silver surfer or something. We said, well, no, we can't call it that. that that's, that's not right. Um, and in the end, Bob Henry said, we should call it Argent. And I said, no, no, no. Because it was one of those things, like when you're in the back of the classroom, I was always really um, embarrassed when, when my name came out, Argent. You know, I thought, oh, I, you know, it reminded me of school sort of thing. And, and, but in the end, against, my, against what I wanted to do, he, he, he made it, um, uh, he decided to, that, that we'd had the name uh, as Argent. And so that became the name of the, of, of the record of, of the, uh, the group. And then the first record. Um, and we, and we formed the band and we did the first album in a, a very small studio that had just started. And it was a great little studio called sound techniques, but, the, and we loved the album. We really were very, very proud of our first album, Argent. And in some ways it's still my favorite album, but it was, it sounded like very much um, a natural, um, a natural follow-on from what what we've been doing with the zombies, um, and, and they loved it as well. They loved Odyssey and Oracle and everything, um, and we recorded this thing. Now, the one thing that was bad about that and and Ring of Hands, which was the second band, was that we felt the actual sound quality in sound techniques, we thought it was great, but we thought it was a bit small as a sound. And then if you heard it against um, another hit record that would come out, their records always sounded a bit more powerful. And strangely enough, not that long ago, a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, they had a, they made, uh, Sony made a five, a five CD box set um, of CDs that they, they, they remastered it and they remastered with the sort of marvellous um, things that you can do these days with remastering, with multi-band compression. So suddenly it felt that the, part, the, the parts that we put on the album were suddenly able to um, compete with the sort of albums from whatever was around. It would be the right level, it would have the right impact of everything that was going on. Unfortunately, they, they deleted from the, the, the five CD um, box set and, and I can't get it anymore now. But that, that really, 
was a great thing for me to get to get that. And 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 I really think that if we'd have managed to get a, a bigger our sound from the album, we, we'd have stood m- much more chance of having a hit record with the with the with the first album. And, and and that was the main reason why we went to Abbey Road again for for the album, which became uh, "Hold Your Head Up" in it. Um, it was because of that, because we wanted a, 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 a bigger sound out of what we were doing. But I still think that we were most at one with those first two albums. And, and I still absolutely love those first two albums. And I think that uh, Russ's voice was really, really special um, in the way that he could be really powerful. But at the same time, when he was singing um, more tenderly, if you like, he had this wonderful high lyrical quality as well when he was singing listen liar is one of my favorite tracks of all time wow. literally i will say i didn't buy the album when napster hit was one of the first songs i downloaded to this day i played incessantly the sound of the record i mean three dog night cover is good but it's nowhere close to the original oh bless you mate yeah well thank you um well we loved it and our idea was that the actual chorus of liar Liar should have really smashed out, but of course it had the effect because the the actual sound as it was at the time was that little bit quieter. So it made a lot of the the verses sounded very quiet, and then the liar sort of came out at the sort of normal level. In a sense, it wasn't. It didn't end up when it was on the radio sounding as as dramatic dramatic as it should have been. Um, but I, I, I thought it was beautifully put together. And I, I loved how we were all playing. I thought Jim Rodford as well. I thought the ba- his bass playing at that time was really fantastic. Um, and, and Bob's drumming was really solid, you know, and exciting. It was, it was th- those first two or three years were, were really, really great fun. And, and we had some very bad uh, experiences. We did a, we did, <laughs> we did a, uh, one of the first uh, venues that we did was in the, it was either the Whiskey or Go-Go or, or the Troubadour, I can't remember. And to our amazement, when uh, everybody turned up, Frank Zappa was there, Jimi Hendrix, um, Eric Burden, uh, just, just everybody was there. And we zoomed into the first record. I had two Leslies and, and they were amplified from, um, uh, a, a, a changing room that the um, support band had and the support band and I can quite understand this were drowned out by this Leslie speaker in their changing room um, and it, that was so that we could um, amplify the, the Leslie speakers without it being having feedback so it the actual effect was that after the first two minutes of the first song, you suddenly couldn't hear the organ for the rest of the whole, the whole set. And, and the organ was a really big part of what we were doing. And I was, it just sounded like disaster to me. And people were very sort of kind about it, but it, you know, it was a real, it was the opposite of, of Elton John doing the, was it the whiskey <laughs> or the troubadour? I can't remember. You know, when he came from nowhere, but had this, suddenly this huge huge explosion of success you know well we had the complete opposite because it what had been great 
gigs for us uh, just turned out to be you know n- no real impact so that that was really a great uh, you know a lot of things went wrong in our in our Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Okay, so ultimately you cut all together now. Hold Your Head Up is a gigantic kit. You follow it up with God Gave Rock and Roll to You on the In Deep album, which really was a stiff at the air and has become a classic because of covers thereafter, even though I think your version is the best. Um, so walk us through the creation of that, the disappointment, and the ultimate leaving of Russ from Argent. Well, I mean, there were, there were several reasons, really. Um, I think that um, God gave rock and roll to you. When it started, um, it was actually... It was a rock and roll tempo. It was God gave rock and roll to you. You know, it was like a double time almost uh, rock and roll thing. Um, but uh, uh, as we always did, I mean, Russ was a great songwriter. But um, as always, we were, all four of us would 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 take an original idea and and we would mess around with the arrangement hugely. And and I have to say, I don't know if Russ remembers at this but i said do you know what we could do 
we could make it half time. God gave rock and roll to, you know, and I said we could have quite a heavy, almost like an industrial feel to it. And, and I changed one of the, the chords, um, do, 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 that bit there. Um, and, uh, and we worked on it and then we worked on really having cascading vocals and everything at the end. And we weren't thinking of it. We weren't thinking of it as a single at the time. We were thinking of it purely as an album track and starting and having many layers and then re really building at the very end to a, this cascading harmonies, you know, which, which we really loved when it, when it came out. Um, and, uh, it, it was, it was used, um, as, as a single after it came out and, uh, and people loved the song basically. And, and, you know, first of all, we weren't thinking of it as a, as a single. Uh, and in fact, we weren't thinking of hold your head up as a single either. Um, in fact, no one was having singles at that particular time, but it became a hit when they, when they cut out three and a half minutes of organ solo, <laughs> um, which is fair enough, you know, um, but, you know, it was all, it was all really good at the time, but then it's like everything else. It's like with the Beatles. I mean, I always thought of the Beatles as the first progressive, um, uh, group ever right from the beginning. I mean, whether it was revolution number nine or whether it was trying their, um, ideas on Helter Skelter or whatever it was, or using you know, music concrete or, or, or whatever, there was so much of that going on. And we were always trying to go to the, the edge of boundaries. And we were always trying to push things and they didn't always work in, in, in the way that they, they should have done, but we were trying all the time to do it. And in the end, Russ wanted to do much more straightforward songs. And I quite understand that. And, and we remain really good friends. But in the end, he said, look, I'm going to, you know, I, 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 I'm going to leave and just go for a solo career and just do some more straightforward songs. And that, that seemed fair enough to me at the time. And, 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 then, and then we broke up, you know, that was it really. Tell me the story of the creation and recording of Hold Your Head Up. Hold Your Head Up was done. Chris White and I shared um, an apartment. We had, we had a, a bedroom each and there was a third guy who did the, um, the artwork for Odyssey and Oracle as well. So that, that was the three of us. And we had a room each uh, at the time. We were just doing that at the beginning. Um, Hold Your Head Up was a song that Chris came into me and said, I've got this song. And I had to say, the, if you're talking about a song that comes from lyrically and um, from the guitar motif, then that was absolutely Chris White. Um, but then again, like with everything, uh, Chris and I used to work on things together, change some of the chords and, and do one thing and another. And, and I did, as I always did, I did lots of the arranging side of what was going on and how we were going to structure the whole thing together. Um, but that original uh, motif, you know, and, and that lovely guitar motif was, was Chris White's. Um, so he did the song. We went in, into Abbey Road to, to record it. We didn't even record, we didn't even rehearse it. We went in to record it and we played it through to Bob Henry and we, we did the unbelievably, I mean, we did 32 takes on it, but we took take one and, um, it was six and a half minutes and we just went on and built, you know, just improvised the middle part 
and just built, built it and built it until at the end, we were happy with what we got. And my God, we, we stayed there for another four or five hours doing about 32 takes, but we went back to one because the great thing was that everyone was really, really listening. And Bob Henry was listening so acutely to, to where the song was going. And unbelievably, we got through the whole thing without making mistakes, but it felt fresh and fresh and improvised. Um, we thought immediately we could do much better, but we never, never achieved anything better. It was just that fresh, early, um, early uh, response to the original idea. Um, and, 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 and that's how it turned out. And, and uh, unbelievably, um, we all sang on the chorus, um, and it was actually, which nobody got until absolutely recently, it was the words were hold it Chris White wrote it and he had his wife in mind and it was because she was going through a difficult time and it was hold your head up woman basically not not whoa as everyone thought it was you know but I would go ah you know at the top and that sort of covered the woman really um so so that that was the story of the of, of the single really well what was it like when it all of a sudden became it was everywhere in the summer of 72 i mean it became absolutely gigantic bigger than anything you'd experienced previously what was that experience from your viewpoint well it was fantastic again but um when we when we toured we never had the sort of we never had the sort of manager that i mean it wasn't that the managers were were bad or cheating or anything like that. They they just weren't really quite the right quality. Um, and it really, strangely enough, it's only in the you know to, to to leap miles forward. And I don't do that for a sec. Um, in the last six or seven years, we've suddenly had um, management that have got everything right and and have understood everything they should be doing, which means that that it's enabled us to grow. In this incarnation of the zombies, for instance, but the but at that time there were always things wrong from the management side of of point of view, um, and um, and I'm sure that's what actually went wrong with it. But I mean, I mean we had some great shows, uh, you know, we had some really great shows, um, but we we had some disastrous, very very important gigs. There was one gig in New York that we did, and we just done. The previous day in Canada, we'd done uh, a gig with um, Richie Blackmore uh, for Rainbow. Uh, and I have to, you know, I, I don't know if, if Richie would agree, but we, we really went down very much better than, than, than Rainbow went down. And then our next gig was in New York, and we had this big gig there. And by halfway through our show, everyone's response had completely tailed off. Because someone had really, um, it was a real tragedy. They'd really, uh, 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 what's what's the what's the word? They they'd um, oh, I can't think of the word. But they it had become a disaster because someone had, had um, we had a disaster with the organ. They'd um, they'd uh, they they pulled some plugs out or something, and it was like playing a very small light sound on the organ instead of the the roaring sound that we should have had. And so, for instance, in, 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 in Hold Your Head Up, when it should have been um, completely blowing things away, it was, it was really a disaster. And we were absolutely, you know, we, it was disastrous for us. And I remember going 
um, to Max's Kansas City afterwards, and I, I just I just wanted to, to commit suicide. I happened to meet um, Brian May there and said, "We've just had the most awful gig in the world." You know, he said, "Oh, I'm sure it wasn't that bad, but it but it was." We had some uh, some people, you know, um, m- making a mess of things. Okay, so Argent breaks up. You become a producer. You have a gigantic hit with Tanita Tickerum, Twisting My Sobriety. And then she completely disappears. <laughs> How did you find her? How did you create the hit? It was The video was all over MTV. And why did she disappear? My, my, um, my colleague, my co-production colleague was Pete, Peter Van Hook, who for years was uh, Van Morrison's drummer. Um, and uh, his tour manager at the time was someone called Paul Charles, who became the head of a really big agency. Um, and he found Tanisha Tikaram at the age of 17, just playing with a single guitar in a small club. Uh, and that's the only thing that she'd done. And, and Paul asked us to produce an album for her. So he said, I want, I want to get a deal with, um, can't remember who the deal was now, but anyway, uh, he wanted to, he wanted to get a deal. Uh, and I think it was universal. I can't remember, but, um, he said, will you do three demos? So we did three demos. And one of those demos was, uh, twist, twisting my sobriety. But Pete had the inspired idea that, that she should sound really comfortable. She should feel really at home when she recorded. So he said, I'm going to put down a little drum machine that gives a very simple, um, metronome sort of effect um and then she's going to play an acoustic guitar and on the acoustic guitar um this is going to be something that she's totally at home with and and it's just going to be voice and guitar and so she she did this it was just a very simple um demo sort of drum track um on a drum machine she laid down the guitar and then she did what became the master vocal and then Pete and I started building up a much more um, uh, uh, complicated um, s- surround for her musically. Um, and uh, I put a, a, a Pete put a drum, a proper drum track on. I put a, a keyboard bass on it. I put some uh, uh, an oboe line, and and I put um, one or two other things on as well. Um, and it sounded absolutely beautiful. And we did, we did the whole album like that. And on one or two of the tracks, we, we, we did exactly the same thing. And on one or two things, we changed the, the, the chords completely and, 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 and put some very, um, very sophisticated chords around what she was doing. But it worked beautifully because she felt totally at home doing it. Um, and I think that could only ever happen once when she was uh, 17 because it was a huge hit. It sold uh, something like 4 million albums um, worldwide, uh, in, in, particularly in Europe. Um, and after that, quite understandably, she wanted to use her own touring band instead of us just um, building up a surround for her. Um, and she did that. And... Um, and uh, it was, it, I think it was a, a more ordinary result. And then after that, she wanted to co-produce it. And for me, it became, again, even more 
ordinary, even though some of the stuff was nice on it. And, and, and the, the sales just went up from 4 million. I think the second, second album did a million and a half, which was still yeah, um, good. But then after that, it was almost nothing until it just faded away. And it's a great shame, but um, I thought it was very special, the first album. Absolutely, most of the world agreed. Okay, at this late date, who owns your songs? And do you get appropriately paid? The earlier stuff, has that reverted in the UK? You talked about Al Galago, Calico in the US. Copyright seems to be forever. We have reversion rights. What's the status of all your publishing? Um, it, it was owned. It, the deal was done in the 60s. So it was a 50-50 deal, as everything was then. Um, and it remained a 50-50 deal. Um, uh, so all the early stuff, um, including the Argent stuff as, as well, was um, with a, a, a company called Marquis Music and Verona Music, which was owned by um, Carol Broughton. And it was 50-50 totally. Um, that has now transferred, but still on a similar basis, to um, Wise Music, who seem really good. I mean, that's only happened recently. But all that early stuff is 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 uh, 50-50, I'm afraid. But then most things in the 60s were, uh, and in the early 70s were that. Um, and um, and that's just how things are at the moment, uh, I'm okay. afraid. Okay, so at this point, if you didn't want to have any other forms of income, does enough come in from your songs that you could live a comfortable life? Yes, and, and that's what's been wonderful because the thing is it, may, it means that we can, we can do what we want through enthusiasm and energy um, and we can still do the, the absolutely rejuvenating thing of, of continuing to make music in the way that we've always made music and, and, and get excited about how we're recording and, 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 and through making a musical idea work and, and seeing that start to come together. Um, and, and, and the thing is, those early things from She's Not There, um, Time of the Season, and Tell Her No, Hold Your Head Up, and one or two other things, um, they've, they've really provided a fantastic income, which has given the freedom to be able to do what we want to do. Um, you, you know, because... This is a very short life, really, that everybody has. As you get older, it feels shorter and shorter. Um, <laughs> and it just means that, that you know, you can actually, you can actually um, continue to do what you want to do and to build things and to continue to write and, and then have that wonderful rejuvenating feeling of being able to go on the road um, and, and see people of a completely different generation often respond to what we're doing um, and getting that energy back from, from people sometimes. I mean, yeah, obviously, we've got people of our, our, our own age who, who listen to us, but also we have some very young people as well. We always have a, a young component in the audience. Um, and, and the thought of, of still being able to, still be able to uh, connect with people um, of a present generation is... It's really unlooked for and quite extraordinary. And, and, and that's something that I, I would never have dreamed of, actually. So I think we, we feel very lucky to be at that point. Well, Rod, this has been brilliant. You're a great storyteller. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, thanks so much, Bob. Thank you. Till next time. 
This is Bob Left Sex. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council.